Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 67, for the week ending September 8, 2017, the post-Harvey edition. After a two-week absence, Jay and I returned for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the compliance and ethics stories which happened while we were off and over the last week, including a U.S. A retired U.S. Army colonel was caught in an FCPA sting. Sam Rubenfeld reported the story, and Richard Bestrong talked about how the arrest of the retired Army colonel, Joseph Baptiste, was unlike the gun sting case where he was a cooperating witness. Andy Spaulding asked if the DOJ pilot program could be made even better. We take a look at a New York banker, Mahmoud Diam, who was jailed for seven years for accepting bribes from Chinese companies. We take a look at Wells Fargo, whose woes grow, grew even more worser. We uh, speak about Mike Volkoff's two-part series on the in, interest in the intersection, rather, of antitrust compliance and anti-corruption compliance. We take a look at a very interesting piece by Bill Steinman in the FCPA blog about why we fight graft and corruption on an international basis. And we take a deep dive into a compliance week pro and con uh, argument over SEC no admission settlements. For the pro side, we had Brad Karp. For the con side, Judd, Judge Jed Rakoff. We take a look at a recent initiative by the Serious Fraud Office in England <coughs> to have greater powers to fight money laundering. We look at the FCPA investigation of Uber. We talk about my interview of Adam Turtletob in the podcast. FCPA Compliance Report, episode 347, where he previews the upcoming 2017 SCCE Compliance and Ethics Institute. We take a look at some of the compliance lessons from Hurricane Harvey. I rag on Jay for (coughs) the Boston Red Sox being yet another Boston sports team caught cheating. And we conclude with a short discussion of this month's podcast series of one month to a more effective compliance program, where I take a look at innovations for your compliance program. The topics that we've gone over in the first week are strategic plan for innovation in your compliance program, artificial intelligence as a compliance advantage, how to find patterns in rake leaves, and ComTech. Oversight Systems is this month's sponsors. This is a longer episode coming in at about an hour, so I hope you enjoy the length. I hope you enjoy the topics. Jay and I certainly enjoyed being back on the air with you. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. I am back with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, and we are back on the air for This Week in FCPA, episode 67 for the week ending September 8th, the post-Harvey edition. Jay, we've been off air for a couple of weeks, so a big welcome back from Houston, Texas. And good to have you back, and good to hear that you and your house and your family and your dogs are all safe. Well, thank you very much. Um, we've been gone quite a while from the air, but uh, that has not stopped the FCPA and greater compliance ethics world from moving forward. So maybe we could just jump right into uh, some of the bigger cases that we've identified here to talk about, Jay. Let's do it. So we had a um, FCPA uh, individual arrest case come up. This week, when, uh, or maybe not this week, uh, uh, certainly in aug- late August, when there was a um, 
unsealed indictment, and it was a rare FCPA individual enforcement action, Jay, because it involved an indiv- uh, a sting operation. And the unsealed criminal indictment of Joseph Baptiste, a retired U.S. Army colonel who was charged in Massachusetts with conspiracy to violate the FCPA, money laundering, um, and uh, other nefarious things, where a undercover FBI agent was uh, paid money, uh, or excuse me, gave money to uh, Baptiste, who would then use that to pay uh, bribes to obtain business from uh, Haitian government officials in the country of Haiti. So um, it's a very unusual to have a sting operation in an FBI case, excuse me, an FCPA case. Uh, Sam Rubenfeld uh, broke the story uh, in the Risk and Compliance Journal, and he noted that this was the uh, only the third time in 40 years that a uh, sting operation had been used in a foreign bribery case. In his piece, he uh, uh, talks about some of the reasons why, but um, I think most uh, people remember the gun sting case and how that ended. A um, couple of interesting points on this one. The first was that Baptiste solicited bribes from undercover FBI agents in Boston, posing as potential and, investors. And, and, and where did that happen? Illegal activity in Boston? I'm shocked. Yes, yes. Uh, it was not even a Boston <laughs> sports team. So, uh, you know, it's going out to the wider non-sports community. Uh, anyway, they were uh, posing as potential investors in infrastructure projects in Haiti, including a port project at the center of the case. He was caught on phone calls, intercepted under a, a court-ordered wiretap, discussing the bribery of an aide to a Haitian government official uh, who had uh, part of the job around that port development project. And the FBI agent sent him fifty thousand, sent Baptiste fifty thousand dollars, and he uh, ended up using that money on personal expenses, not to bribe the foreign government official, uh, but he was going to use more money uh, from the FBI to pay future uh, bribes out. And then another interesting twist, uh, Baptiste had agreed to plead guilty in December 2015, but more recently had decided not to honor uh, that agreement. So that's really unusual where somebody would agree to plead guilty and then uh, turn around and say, no, no, I want to go to trial. You would think that they um, would have considered their position and considered that uh, perhaps uh, they didn't really have a defense, but uh, his lawyer says that they're going to put up a, a defense at trial and uh, see how it goes. So maybe the DOJ wanted a stiffer sentence and they were willing to agree to. Who knows the reason? And then the, the timeline on that, 2015, uh, and here we are in the middle of 2017, that's certainly a, a fairly long time for all this to happen or not happen, as the case may be. So uh, really interesting uh, development there. And then if I could uh, maybe take a minute to contrast, or at least Richard Bestrong wrote what I thought was a very interesting piece in the FCPA blog entitled, uh, The Baptiste Case Isn't Another Africa Sting Case. And, uh, you know, perhaps I'll give him a grammatical pass for putting a contraction in the title of a professional article. But, um, he, uh, he talked about the differences between this case and his case, really the, uh, the Gunsting case. And in the Gunstein case, he was an undercover cooperating witness uh, in that matter, although that did have some sting, um, stings uh, 
uh, around it because it was a fake operation or excuse me, a fake bribery opportunity uh, where this case uh, was not a fake bribery opportunity. But um, but Strong went on to add, uh, talk about some of the other cases where undercover operations were uh, used. And obviously, Joseph Siegelman, the former chief executive officer, Petro Tiger, uh, when uh, the FBI wired up his lawyer when he went to talk to him. And then he, uh, Bastrong had a really interesting line which said, uh, all stings are undercover, but not all undercover operations are stings. So um, he said uh, uh, procedurally or perhaps wit- evidentiarily, the absence of a cooperating witnesses witness dramatically reduces the testimony from a person uh, who may have passed or, or concurrent criminal conduct which would cause them to have a brutal cross-examination. So here we have uh, court-ordered wiretaps, and Bestrong believes that that will be um, more favorably viewed upon by the uh, potential trier fact, whether that be a judge or, or jury. So, um, uh, and then Richard ends his his piece really um, with something from his trial where he was uh, at least uh, – aggressively cross-examined on why he never used the word bribe in his conversations. And in his piece, he said, for several evidentiary reasons, I couldn't share those details in the courtroom, uh, whatever that might mean, whether there was an objection and it was sustained or some uh, motion in limine, which keeps certain evidence out. But he says, I share them the evidentiary reasons now especially when addressing compliance in commercial terms. And he says, quote, it's because people don't say bribe. And, uh, you know, he tries to make that a dramatic point, and perhaps it should be, but it's really not dramatic. And it's the way people talk about illegal conduct in business. Um, you know, even uh, if there was organized crime in Boston, um, they probably wouldn't talk about the, <laughs> use the word bribe. Um or any other city in the Northeast, um, they would use some other word, some code word. Um, so um, uh, that's the reason, and I think Richard's spot on um, that point as well. So kind of what were your thoughts on all of this? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting situation, and um, I too enjoyed Richard's piece because he really informs it from a perspective of somebody who's going through it. And another point that I kind of took away, and I'm not sure if it was from the original article or Richard's article, but it seems that um, since Richard had to take the stand and uh, a lot of uh, focus was put on, you know, whether or not he was being accurate and, you know, how he presented himself in court, it seems with the, the Baptiste case that there's more um analytical uh, information to go on, the wiretaps and less um, things that could be uh, pejoratively impeached. So that was the takeaway I took. Um, To your point, I still think it's pretty interesting that after a year and a half, um, you know, he's decided to, um, you know, shake the dice and see what happens. So I'm, I'm wondering what has happened in the intervening 18 months. It seems like you know, from the Wall Street Journal article, from what Sam wrote, that this might be 
something that came of the augmentation of the FBI strike force with uh, more people in New York, L.A., and D.C. So this kind of does show you it takes a while to develop a case. And uh, I'm wondering whether or not this could be a trend. You know, I guess, number one, it's going to depend upon uh, whether or not there's going to be a conviction. But if they are successful in doing this, uh, maybe there are other cases that are going to be made using more of the traditional investigative techniques that the FBI is so good at. Uh, next up, we had an article by Andy Spaulding, Professor Andy Spaulding. I think he's at the University of Richmond in the FCPA blog entitled, How Can We Make the Pilot Program Even Better? And it looks like Andy is going to have a several series, se- several piece series on this. And, um, He's got a, a paper uh, coming out that uh, is uh, linked to in the FCPA blog piece. And, of course, we're linking to the FCPA blog piece in our show notes. And it's going to start, I think, an interesting review of the pilot program. Uh, today, someone else kind of wrote or, or put up an article where they uh, severely criticized the pilot program. But that's not the perspective Andy Spaulding has. And he uh, starts off with, uh, I think, a pretty good review of the three really four prongs of the of the pilot program and that's where he seems to be going so let me just quote although the guidance um the pilot program guidance as opposed to other guidance is widely understood to impose three factors self-disclosure cooperation and remediation there is actually a fourth it is not numbered and does not appear in the same section as disclosure cooperation and remediation it precedes them and is buried in a prefatory language of page two The pilot program provides that to be eligible for the credit detailed in the memo, uh, even a company that meets the three um, prongs will be required to disgorge all profits resulting from the FCPA violation. Um, So uh, we've now seen two examples, Jay, this year, earlier this year, of declinations with disgorgement. Uh, Andy finds this to be um, something that advances the – underlying purposes of the FCPA and enforcement of the FCPA, and I certainly tend to agree with him. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how this plays out uh, going forward, and uh, he's a great writer, he's a great professor, great lecturer, great speaker, so I'll be very interested to see, and perhaps we can uh, have some follow-up on uh, future episodes. So next we had a... um, conviction of a banker for a U.S. citizen, actually, for uh, soliciting of bribes. And in a uh, kind of a twist, we have a New York banker who at one point was a mining minister for the West African country of Ghana. And he was the mining minister for Ghana, although he was a U.S. citizen, because he immigrated to um, America as a young lad, no doubt as a dreamer. And he uh, got obtained U.S. citizenship, and uh, then in 2000, and from 2009 to and 2010, he was the Minister of Mines and Geology in Ghana, and he took 8.5 million dollars in bribes from the Chinese company Sonagal International to um, uh, give them mining rights, and he was convicted of that. The in a court in New York, I think he was sentenced to seven years. Um, 
Yep, seven years in jail, uh, and he was convicted for money laundering, although this is not an FCPA case because um, the person who actually received the money was was a U.S. citizen, and he was indicted under, under money laundering laws. I suppose it's possible that the uh, Chinese involved could have been uh, uh, at least indicted. I doubt they could have been brought to justice. But uh, a really a rare case where we have a U.S. citizen who's serving as a foreign minister of a of a foreign country um, convicted of uh, receiving bribes and uh, money laundering. And uh, importantly, he says uh, during his trial, he lied to the banks not to conceal bribes, but to avoid being designated as a PEP, a politically exposed person. His primary concern was to be treated as Mahmoud Thiam, private citizen, he testified. And as we all know, banks are sometimes reluctant to deal with PEPs because of money laundering concerns, and they would have been right on in this matter. And you've always wondered why Bruce Wayne did not want to be known as Batman. Well, now you know. He just wanted to be (laughs) regular um, regular old Bruce Wayne. There you have it. So now we have another story that just will not go away. Wells Fargo, based on another internal investigation, has now boosted the number of unauthorized accounts to 3.5 million. So in the first go around, they had admitted to 2.1 million. And then this new round of exploration, they came out with an additional um, 1.4 million fraudulent accounts. So depending on whose numbers you want to do, they either added an additional 40% if you look at the whole thing as 3.6 million accounts or based on the original 2.1 million, they've added or uncovered 70% more of fraudulent accounts. So uh, this is the, uh, the Corruption Institute that will just not go away. This case has been going on for the last several years and it looks like you know uh despite paying the fines and saying that they're remediating and do everything that needs to be done uh to come up with a number of accounts that is uh you know more than uh, almost three quarters of what was not initially accounted for uh it really means that there's still a lot of work to be done within wells fargo and um, this is on top of, I think it was 500,000 people who were found to have been uh, assessed uh, illegal insurance charges or uh, other charges that the bank shouldn't have put on. So it's uh, really just quite astounding. Jay, the um, Warren Buffett called it, and he said the following, whenever you find there, what you find is there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. When you start looking around and um, you're right, this is the case that just the, uh, the uh, company just keeps on giving and to have an increase of 70 percent in the number of fraudulent accounts is is almost mind boggling. It puts into question uh, the internal investigation um, done uh, uh, by Wells Fargo. It puts into question the external investigation by outside counsel. It certainly puts into question the testimony by the former CEO when uh, when he made to Congress, all of the disclosures 
Um, I don't know if you bank at Wells Fargo, but I would have to say I'm not going to bank at Wells Fargo. And uh, that's really the bottom line when you have a bank that can't be trusted. Um, uh, that's really what a bank has is trust. And the uh, what I really speculate on is the following, Jay. You and I both know the most dreaded question in the FCPA world is where else? Uh, because that can lead literally to a worldwide investigation. And you've seen that, you know, from your former days as Mr. Translations, right up and through your current days as Mr. Monitors. But Wells Fargo may add a new question, which is what else? Um, because this is not international, this is all domestic. And putting on another uh, 1.7 million unauthorized uh, accounts on the 2.1 already, um, this is just like like you said, almost mind boggling. So if we follow your um, go down the rabbit hole of what else, do we go back into mortgages or do we go into private wealth or you know where where would you think the next uh, area of um, of trouble may lie? Well, um, Private wealth is probably going to be smaller in numbers um, simply because there's less wealthily private people uh, than those who have regular accounts at Wells Fargo. But certainly you're absolutely right on mortgages. Um, another huge money money maker for the company. And uh, if they, uh, I would have to assume they haven't charged uh, usurious interest rates but they surely could have, if they were putting um, insurance requirements on car auto loans, if they're putting those kinds of charges on regular account holders, they could be putting uh, une uh, illegal, unethical, or other charges on mortgage holders, and mortgage holders not even be aware of it. So uh, it, it could certainly uh, continue to expand. Um, I did a, a fairly passionate a podcast on Wells Fargo, the Wells Fargo board, asking them to put some someone from compliance on the board uh, because they've got to get uh, some compliance and ethics uh, inculcated in this company. And they obviously didn't have it. Um, the timeline they're looking at for these uh, accounts was uh, back to 2009. But what happens if they start looking further back? Uh, is that going to be another, you know, X million and um, it is just bad, 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 and it keeps getting worse or worse or worse. All right. Well, let's jump over to one of the contributors to the uh, Everything Compliance podcast, our good friend Mike Volkov. And um, you've selected a, a really great uh, two-part series that uh, Mike put together, and it's about how chief compliance officers – have to not only address uh, corruption risks, but also look at antitrust risks. So um, what was it about this article that caught your eye, Tom? So really what I want our audience to understand, Jay, is that there is a convergence of compliance. Compliance can be anti-corruption compliance, the compliance you and I have focused on for the last few years. But compliance is really 
uh, following any regulatory scheme. So you can have export control compliance, you can have anti-money anti laundering compliance, and you can have antitrust compliance. And Mike has an antitrust background. He was actually in the DOJ antitrust section, so he can speak to the specifics of antitrust much better than you and I. But the point I took away was that uh, antitrust compliance should be uh, a part of the chief compliance officer's remit because the dangers for antitrust violations are, are actually greater under the Sherman Antitrust Act than under the, uh, the, the FCPA and that companies need to have, as, um, have a robust anti-corruption compliance program with, uh, uh, similar to an um, uh, antitrust compliance program, similar to an anti-corruption compliance program, and that if you don't, uh, you are setting yourself up that, once again, uh, if the DOJ comes knocking and you don't have a, an antitrust compliance program, then uh, you have nothing to, to try to trade for, trade your sentence down, or try trade your fine down. Most companies, um, and maybe you can think about your uh, corporate experience here, um, most companies mention antitrust in a code of conduct or code of business ethics, something like that at a very high level, and they say don't engage in you know, don't talk to our competitors, that kind of thing. Um, in my corporate experience, we, we had a little more training in the legal department than that. Uh, but that was really it. And that was the antitrust compliance program was just training. And um, so I think companies need to take a, a pretty serious look at this. They need to see if they have assessed their risks and then manage that risk. And Mike really lays out, I think, uh, pre two pretty good blog posts how to do so. Yeah, I, th I, th I think it was uh, one of the things I, I appreciate with uh, Mike is that he is really able to get right into the meat and uh, really write blogs that can be um, immediately prescriptive on what you need to do. And, um, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, a lot of these things that you're looking for, there is some overlap um, with FCPA, but I think if you're uh, doing the compliance on your business, these are things that should additionally be on your radar, you know, and, and Mike really brings up some good points as to what to look for. Um, next up on our list, we've got an article by uh, Bill Steinman on Graft, and he's entitled it, Why We Fight, and with you being a a film buff, do you want to launch off there and tell us where Bill gets the title from and what he discusses in his piece? Sure. In, uh, in connection with World War II, Frank Capra was asked by the U.S. government to put together a film series, really propaganda films, but films nonetheless, on why uh, the United States entered World War II and fought World War II. If you, if you have not seen these, they are fabulous m movies. Uh, Frank Capra, obviously a great director, and he did first first class movies. And his, in the series, he examined why the U.S. needed to join and stay in the fight against uh, fascism and stand up for what is right. Uh, so Bill really took a riff on that, and I thought just in an excellent piece. Uh, if you know Bill at all, you know he's a he's a great speaker and a great writer, and uh, a good friend of I think both of us. He talked about. Uh, graft and corruption, 
were, in my mind, the two are equal, across the globe and the true cost. And he talks about it in terms of natural disasters. He talks about it in terms of health care. He talks about it in terms of uh, undermining market forces. He talks about, uh, as a business traveler, he wonders whether or not a civilian aviation authority in a country he may travel to has been paid bribes. He worries about fire alarms in uh, hotels, substandard um, um, uh, uh underground travel systems. He talks about building collapses. He talks about uh, things like WorldCom and Enron, uh, which were uh, financial fraud. And he really lays out, I thought, an excellent reason. Uh, I mean, I've written about this, and Bill takes, uh, a fr- I think, a fresh look at it, and, and it very importantly articulates why the United States, it's in the specific interest of the United States, to engage in the worldwide fight against corruption. There are some commentators that say it's not in the interest of the U.S. We can uh, uh, police U.S. companies, but that, that is it. Well, that that is that view is wrong, and it's wrong for many reasons, but Bill points out the human cost in that. And I really uh, thought it was a great piece and a uh, something that everybody should read and every chief compliance officer needs to be aware of going forward. Yeah, I think it can kind of uh, give some strong background to what General Mathis was speaking about a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And it really does, like you said, make the case for why we all do what we do. Uh, next thing, we've got almost like a, what would you call it, like a little mock trial debate uh, dealing with the terms neither admit nor deny. And on the uh, four side, we have uh, Brad Karp from the law firm of Paul Hastings, and he's um, assisted with his colleague, Susanna, um, I hope I don't butcher her last name, Burgell. And then on the against side, playing contrarian again, is uh, the Honorable Judge Jed Rakoff. So, Tom, why don't you tell us about neither admit nor deny and why that is at uh, on the uh, arguing table here between these two parties. Sure, and uh, I'm going to really geek out here, so you just have to bear with me. <laughs> so uh, this uh, neither admit or deny are types of settlements generally entered into by regulatory agencies. This is not the Department of Justice. This is Securities and Exchange Commission that are talking about specifically here. And they've been a feature of... Um, regulatory enforcement for some 50 years. They've come under, um, if not withering criticism, certainly significant criticism. Uh, Judge uh, Jed Rakoff has led this criticism of uh, neither admit nor deny. And uh, let me start with Judge Rakoff's criticism. He believes that the purpose of SEC enforcement in securities fraud is to maximize the deterrent effect and that the argument of the for or pro uh, admit or deny language to conserve resources, allowing corporations to uh, not spend money on an expensive trial and to protect them from uh, secondary or follow on actions such as shareholder derivative suits is not a valid argument uh, because the, the purpose of enforcement is, is to deter. And he believes it would be a far better use of SEC resources to actually take companies to trial than to uh, obtain meaningless settlements. Uh, under From a judicial perspective, 
He also says um, that admit or deny settlements prevent many cutting-edge legal issues from ever being decided and develop the um, and inhibits the development of law. And really, um, in perhaps his most withering comment, he concludes by noting that the um, by allowing a company to neither admit nor deny is the notion that one should be able to avoid compensation, compensating the victims of one's fraud, i.e. the shareholders or others who might sue by denying misconduct would otherwise, that a company would otherwise be prepared to honestly admit to the SEC sounds hypocritical, if not downright honest. Um, Carp and uh, we decided her name was Burgle. Did you mean dishonest? Dishonest, right. So uh, in in the four or pro, um, they really uh, say it's in the interest of the SEC to allow corporate defendants to avoid making uh, admissions that will be used against them in parallel civil litigation. And that if the SEC didn't do this, the cost even if you just consider the cost of uh, the fine and penalty would really pale besides the um, entire uh, cost that a company would pay. Um, he worries about employees losing jobs, creditors getting paid, commercial counterparties uh, being able to enforce their uh, contract rights, and that corporations cannot effectively defend a follow-on civil litigation if they've been forced to make material admissions as the price of a regulatory um, settlement. So uh, it's really um, competing interests here. Um, a corporation wants to um, get out for as little as possible, money-wise certainly, but they also want to not admit any facts. And uh, interestingly, Carp points out, and once again correctly points out, that there have been uh, two such, two instances where companies, excuse me, federal judges have um, not granted or admit or deny settlements. And in both cases, the uh, courts of appeals uh, overturned the federal district judge and said they committed reversible error and not uh, admitting uh, the proposed cease and desist orders, which had the admit or deny language uh, in them. So um, when you consider the regulatory framework that's been in place for 50 years, um, this seems to be, and certainly in Carp's mind, working. Um, Judge Rakoff's response to that is simply that uh, a past persistence of a flawed policy is no reason to consider to continue using it. So this debate will continue. I don't know if uh, Congress would have to get involved to change it. Perhaps so, uh, because uh, it's pretty clear from the court rulings that. Federal judges cannot reject an SEC settlement which uses admit or deny language. And we found out this year that uh, federal judges cannot reject a deferred prosecution agreement uh, because they believe it is too lenient. So lots of power to the prosecutors, whether those prosecutors be at the DOJ or uh, the SEC. If you are enjoy getting into the weeds, uh, I would heartily commend you to these two articles in Compliance Week. Once again, we'll link to them in the show notes. Uh, so for all you lawyers out there, geek out. And uh, anything in light of these articles to relate back to our favorite book of the late summer and early fall, The Chicken Shit Club? 
Well, certainly um, on the DOJ side, deferred prosecution agreements, but uh, as CARP correctly points out, uh, neither admit nor deny settlements have been in the SEC's uh, bandwidth for 50 years. So that is not new. Uh, what the Chicken Shit Club, I think, really focused on was the lack of criminal prosecutions involving the financial crisis and what led to that. So to the extent uh, federal judges do not have any say-so over deferred prosecution agreements, I would say the answer is yes. To the extent that this specifically relates only to the SEC, probably not. Okay. Uh, next up, UK seeks tougher laws on corporate financial crime. Yeah, um, we wanted to bring in an international flavor uh, to this week. Uh, so we've got uh, a piece from Susie Ring, and I think this was out of Bloomberg, where she said that the um, there's a proposal in the United Kingdom to make it easier to hold companies accountable for financial crimes, uh, or, and it's failing to prevent financial crimes. Now, under the UK Bribery Act, there is an action against companies for failing to prevent bribery, but this is broader. This is money laundering and other financial crimes. And if the UK passes this, uh, it could really uh, put the onus on companies to take much more aggressive and um, affirmative steps to actually prevent bribery and corruption and other financial crimes. And this could be something that could cross the Atlantic. So I wanted to raise this, Jay, uh, to alert the international compliance practitioner uh, who might be listening in our audience, but also uh, to think about what what would be the impact on your company if this came across the Atlantic in some sort of uh, new legislation. So uh, interesting development, which we will follow. Great. And now um, you and I have taken many of an, an Uber to dinners at conferences and baseball games. Uh, are we going to have to uh, switch our allegiance or what are we going to do now that Uber has announced that they are under um, FCPA investigations? Well, uh, Sam, uh, no, um, two other reporters from the Wall Street Journal in the tech uh, section, Douglas McMillan and Aruna Vishwanathan, uh, broke the story that Uber is under investigation by the Department of Justice for FCPA violations. And I have to start out, Jay, by saying it's really no surprise, uh, I, or I can't say I'm surprised, given the company's um, uh, lack of, of an ethical culture to start with, it would not surprise me at all. And from the from the lessons learned, and you know, perhaps this would be the subject for another podcast, but really Uber is a company that everything they do touches a foreign government or a government or a regulator because the taxi cab industry is one of the most heavily regulated industries literally across the globe. Uh, taxi cab drivers from Houston to London to Sichuan have to have some sort of government permit. So the individual driver has to have a permit. You have to have a permit to, to put your cab service uh, on, on the public roads. Uh, there's a, a safety requirements for car inspections. Just almost every touch point you can think of, Uber has that with a regulator in some country, in some state, in some city, and maybe in some county, some places. So uh, given what we now know about the toxic culture at, at, at Uber and their complete lack of ethical values, at least uh, before uh, the resignation of former CEO uh, Kalanick, uh, I'm not surprised. Um, 
wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Uber was greasing payments, that greasing, making grease payments or uh, greasing skin, as we would say, um, not bribes, just a little grease here and there to make things lubricate better. But um, the uh, whether they'll claim they were simply facilitation payments or not, they may make that argument. But it doesn't surprise me at all. And uh, of all of the headaches that the new CEO has, this may be uh, one that bubbles up for him quite a bit too. All right. Well, that uh, remains to be seen. Uh, here's something that you and I were talking about before we went on the air. And um, just about six weeks away now is the uh, SCCE, the Society of Corporate and Compliance Ethics, uh, Compliance and Ethics Institute, which will be held in Las Vegas this year from October 15th to the 18th. And uh, Tom and Adam Turtle Tob had a great conversation and they're really taking a look at how to plan your conference going experience. Uh, what is the best way to attack meeting um, a couple thousand of your newest best friends? And uh, Tom and I have been going to the conference for a while. So Tom, what were some of the thoughts that you and Adam came up with about the best way to get the most you can of the upcoming CEI? Well, Adam really had about three things that I think he highlighted. One was the various tracks, and these include the following tracks, ethics, risk, case studies, compliance lawyer, multinational, international, IT compliance, general compliance, hot topics, and advanced discussion groups. So kind of point one is um, get the schedule, get the brochure, plan out the track you want to attend, um, and get to uh, uh, kind of plan out uh, who you want to hear and what you want to see. The second is uh, take advantage of the non-breakout uh, sessions and non-keynotes, meaning the Sunday beforehand, where speed networking and speed mentoring. Take advantage of the uh, cocktail party um, reception on uh, Monday night, I think. Uh, wear your jersey. Your, everybody wears a sports jersey, and you get to kind of either talk to or rag on people about the teams they're supporting. And, uh, and then uh, um, talk to the vendors. Uh, get into the vendor room. Go around and see what's, what are some of the innovations a lot of companies have innovations or new product offerings that they will roll out at roll out at or near the time of SCCE for maximum exposure, and they uh, uh, talk to them about that. Find out what they're where what uh, where, what direction they're going. What's new? Uh, are they vendors there to sell? Absolutely, but they're not going to make you sign up, and they're not going to make you give your you know you got to show your ID to give them your detailed information so they can follow up. They're not going to take your all of that contact information. So if they want to talk to you and they want to talk to you in an informal atmosphere and, frankly, a very friendly atmosphere, it's not a hard sell. It's information. And they're going to have a lot of information at the ver their booths, uh, which they can share with you. So really, those were kind of the three takeaways I got from Adam. Uh, it, we're expecting nearly 2,000 this year, I think he thinks he said. It's going to be huge. We're going to be in the uh, Las Vegas Caesars Palace. I've stayed there before. It's a fabulous venue. And uh, well set up for our size group. So uh, looking forward to uh, uh, doing it this year, Jay. Great. Here's a, a couple things that I just wanted to tack on. Um, uh, to your point about making the most out of the 
non-official um, sessions, one of the things that I've been doing for the last five years is showing up early on the Saturday before and being part of the volunteer event. And for three of these conferences, it's been pretty easy because I'm in LA and I can just hop a jet to Burbank and be there in about an hour. But in Vegas, we've um, worked at a local food bank, bank putting together uh, bags for people who need food. Uh, a couple of years in a row, we worked at a local veterans house where we did um, some yard work and some gardening and replay, repainting. And we also did uh, similar events in Chicago. So the first time I ever went to a CEI, I didn't know anybody. And I figured the best way to go about this was to optimize the chance I was going to run into people. And the nice part when you're at the volunteer session is everybody has a name tag on it, but it just says your first name. So, uh, you know, as the conference went on, I realized that I was sweating next to Al Gagne or working with Dan Roach and his wife. And I really had an opportunity to meet a microcosm of the people who have been very meaningfully involved uh, with SCCE. Uh, Al's a very good friend. He's uh, been instrumental in getting me to be participate in the advanced discussion groups. So that's one thing. And the second point I want to echo from Tom is that we go to a lot of conferences during the year. And um, SCCE is one of the most popularly priced conferences that it doesn't really break the bank. And you get a lot of content and you get a lot of contacts. The other thing is they set up a friendly environment where you get to interact uh, with the vendors and I think, as uh, Roy and Adam usually say, uh, th the new advances in corruption are going to, in anti-corruption and ethics and compliance, are going to come from all those vendors who are in the conference room and who are there by, you know, where you get breakfast and where you get coffee. But the SEC really believes that that's where innovation comes from. And unlike some other conferences where they kind of stick the vendors in the back so they won't bother anyone, uh, I've made a lot of friends in the vendor community. I, I'm part of it, but I would highly recommend both those things uh, to really help and enhance your uh, conference going experience. Uh, Tom, we're now going to come up to a couple things that you wrote about. Um, some personal experiences with the hurricane and what they've made you think about from an ethics and compliance readiness perspective. But there's really two things that I wanted to highlight. The first is that you have to be prepared. You have to be prepared for an emergency. You've got to have a preparedness plan in place. And living here in Houston, you would think that companies would have a hurricane preparedness plan in place. If you're doing business internationally, you would hope that you would have an FCPA preparedness plan in place. But the other thing, Jay, that struck me as I worked through those issues through the week that I ended the week with is you have to practice your preparation and you have to practice uh, compliance. And I cited back to the uh, James Mattis memo uh, where he talked about the uh, ethical considerations and actions of Department of Justice, excuse me, Department of Defense and U.S. military members. And he said in there that we would practice our ethics so that when the situation came, uh, we would either know what the answer was uh, or our, we, we would have uh, that so wired into our system that we would just do the right thing.
So um, really practicing compliance, I think, is, is going to be uh, the lesson that I really take away from it. Uh, obviously, I wrote and thought a lot about um, Hurricane Harvey, but there were some other great commentators who wrote that uh, I've cited to, I'd like to just shout out to Jacqueline Jager, uh, discussed in corporate ph- philanthropy at its finest uh, in an article in Compliance Week. Matt Kelly wrote about some of the best and worst of corporate actions and behaviors on his post on radical compliance. And then Mike and I took a, uh, excuse me, Matt and I took a deep dive into it uh, on our uh, podcast, Compliance into the into the Weeds. So lots about Harvey. I hope you'll take a look at some of those um, still impacting Houston. And if I could ask on a personal note, uh, please make some donation to the charity of your choice to, to help the people. A lot of people are suffering here. Um, but from Hurricane Harvey to cheating in Boston, what could be better about Beantown than cheating? So, yeah, you know this. This was the part of the podcast that I dreaded. Yeah, I was. I was hoping we could spend as much time away, but um, I, I'm sitting here. Why don't you unload on me and give me give me the signs? So, um, at first I thought, oh, how horrible this is, but you know, this is baseball, and in baseball, stealing signs from a catcher is not only an age-old, but it's an honored tradition. And the first recorded instance of stealing of signs from a catcher in baseball, I think, was 1867. So we have conduct that's been engaged in for nearly 160 years here. What the Red Sox did that's got people so excised is they use technology. Well, I'm not going to... Uh, uh, break our, uh, uh, I'll just say boo-hoo. They use technology. Uh, Binoculars for technology, signaling in from uh, center field on a a buzzer is technology. Um, Now, it's not technology if you're standing on second base and you can see the catcher. I acknowledge that. Um, But it's pretty close to technology if you use hand signs to signal to your batter what the next pitch is. So, uh, Jay, this is really all much ado about nothing. And if your Patriots weren't such well-known and convicted cheaters, nobody would care. Well, Tom, you were much, uh, much softer on me than I thought you would be. But, um, <laughs> you know, baseball does have its traditions. And uh, what do they call it? Brinksmanship is one of them. But I, um, I'm going to choose to take the other sign here and uh, – I'm like, come on, guys. Uh, you know, you're, you're well paid, you're pampered, you're, you're treated well, and uh, you've got skills. So I, I don't know how many extra wins above replacement you're going to get from using your Apple watches. So uh, uh, I, I think I, I'm just feeling the, the toll of everything from <laughs> deflate gate. And um, Bye, I'm just I'm just wondering what do the Bruins and the Celtics need to do to join the club? Because what are you going to do in ice hockey? How are you going to use technology to score a goal? And then in terms of uh, the NBA, are we are we going to see some type of variation on Deflate Gate? So, any predictions on how the rest of the Boston sports teams can join the club? 
You know, I don't have a prediction, but I guess the one thing that really does bother me about this is the use of the Apple Watch. And I just hope that the Apple brand is not tarnished because of its association with the Boston Red Sox. Well, I guess if, uh, if, if yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so um, we are now in a new month. What are you looking at this month in your one month to a better and more effective series? Uh, what is the topic? So, Jay, this month I'm reviewing innovations for your compliance program. We uh, posted uh, on day four today, but uh, this week I've looked at uh, having a strategic plan for innovation in your compliance program, artificial intelligence as a compliance advantage, uh, finding patterns in rake leaves, and uh, uh, the new term that I coined, ComTech, which is the technological solution to the compliance industry. I've got a new sponsor this month, and that's Oversight Systems. So shout out to Oversight, and thanks for being this month's sponsor. And uh, really have enjoyed this because I've got to talk about a lot of things. I've got the month planned out, Jay. So I hope the, the listeners will check out my uh, One Month of a More Effective Compliance Program series. It's been a, a ton of fun doing it. And um, I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to extend it into 2018. But uh, through 2017, I will certainly continue it through the end of the year. This month, it's uh, innovation and compliance. And I hope you'll check it out. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with you to... Um sponsor one of the monthly podcasts what would be the best way that they should do that uh they can contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com so jay Excellent. unfortunately we're near the end of our time uh it's been a great uh, episode to catch up on it's been great to, to get back in the saddle with uh this week in fcpa but i was wondering if you might want to take us home sure so on behalf of tom fox the compliance evangelist who is safe and back in home in Houston where he belongs, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for uh, joining us on this extended podcast of one hour as we've caught up for last week, and we've looked at the FCPA week that was for the week ending September 8th, 2017. Thanks for listening, and Houston Strong. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only <clears throat> weekly wrap-up of all things compliance and ethics related in the podcast world. Also, if you have any questions, you can contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can contact Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>